we announced earlier this week, we are expanding our podcast and starting today, we're going to be doing bi-monthly episodes only in English. We've met lots of people over the years and we realized we can't really talk to them in Macedonian. Uh, so we decided to do it in English for our first uh, special English edition on the pod. We've got a special guest joining us all the way from Thailand. He's a return Peace Corps volunteer from Macedonia, a graduate of the University of Virginia, a historian who currently teaches in Suratani, Thailand, and a very good friend of ours, Phil Pinchton. Welcome on the pod, Phil. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, it's a real honor to be the first uh, English-speaking guest. Well, considering how, how many Peace Corps volunteers have turned out over the years here in Macedonia, it, it, it's, it's quite natural. So how are, how is life going, Phil? How's life? Um, well, you know, I'm sort of holding my own here. Uh, I'm lucky to be uh, still employed. Um, I teach at an international school um, in Suratani, which is a town in like the south part of Thailand. Um, and we're doing online courses and I'm, you know, I'm trying to do my best with it. It's, it's, uh, no one was really kind of prepared for this. So, you know, it's been, um, been a struggle. The school year is almost over actually. And, um, in, um, a few weeks I'll actually be moving, uh, because I, uh, got another job at another school in Thailand. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. And do you teach any core subjects or is what, what exactly are you teaching there? I teach English, math, and science. Um, there's also like social studies, but social studies for grade three is like being a good citizen and, um, you know, things like that. And it's very like American centric and all of my kids in my class are Thai. And so it's not really, it's not really a good uh, curriculum for them. So I kind of weave in my social studies. Yeah, so we've, we've met uh, when you were a Peace Corps volunteer in Macedonia a mm -hmm. few years back. So let's start a conversation about that, the, that whole experience of yours. And I mean, our first question would be for those that are listening and don't really know what Peace Corps is. Can you explain to us what's the, what, what is Peace Corps and like the, the whole process behind it? Sure, yeah. Uh, the Peace Corps is... Um, a department of the American government um, and they send volunteers to countries that um, invite them and basically these volunteers work in development and in um, like cultural exchange sort of like a, a, a less formal diplomacy that's kind of the way I see it um, so yeah I was a volunteer in Macedonia uh, where I worked in um, a couple of rural schools in the cent the central part of Macedonia. Oh, good, great. So, um, so considering we know that you were in Bogomila for a very long time teaching as a, a as as an English teacher, uh, what like how did you decide to go into Peace Corps, and how was your experience in Macedonia? Just give us a general overview and yeah. your thoughts on the country. Well, um, the Peace Corps was kind of a way for me to have really a big privilege to travel and learn a different culture and another language. Um, I had gone to school to be a teacher, but um, for almost four years, I didn't use my degree and I wanted to get back into it. And I also wanted to travel and experience a different place. So I applied for the Peace Corps as a long process although it has gotten shorter, I think. And um, at first I was going to be sent to um, Armenia because I did not mind where, where they sent me as long as it wasn't like an island in the middle of the Pacific. Um, and uh, they were going to send me to Armenia and I said, great. Um, and uh, they moved some things around and they put me in uh, Macedonia and I was really happy about that. Um, it's, Macedonia is like my second home. That's what I've always said to people, um, amazing culture, amazing, uh, you know, people, I've met some people that changed my life and, uh, you know, it, uh, it's something that I'll never forget. Yeah. So you selected 
you're put on a plane, you get to Macedonia. What's mm -hmm. the process next? Do you go straight to your place that you're going to be uh, working and serving or what's, what's happening after you land in Skopje? So the first thing I did when I landed in Skopje was I made a comment about how hot it was there. Um, <laughs> um, the uh, volunteers, uh, when they uh, arrive, they go through about three months of training. Um, a lot of that training is language, uh, but it's also cultural uh, to kind of understand the context in which you're working. Um, and there's also technical training. So they put me in uh, Negotino, a small town, uh, which I loved, and they put me with a host family. And I was really lucky with them, and I'm still very close with them. The last time I visited uh, Macedonia, which was uh, almost a year ago, um, of course, I went to go see them. So after your training, uh, you are actually a volunteer, and they send you to what's called your site you know, which is like your permanent place for the next two years. And they sent me to a small vi village outside of Velis. Well, not really outside of Velis, between Velis and Freelap, uh, called Bogomila, where I um, worked in a very, very small school. Great. Uh, so, so because like we've known you, we talked to you, mm -hmm. you know, uh, when you were here, you were really great with your Macedonian. Thank so, you. Uh, how how long did it take you to adapt, and can we hear some good old Macedonian from you once again? Moje, um, so when I um, first got to Macedonia, uh, I I had never learned a foreign language from the ground up. Um, that's a problem with Americans. Is a lot of Americans uh, they just don't learn a language. They don't travel. They're kind of privileged because you know English is is so uh, universal. Um, so I, I, it was slow for me at, uh, at first. Uh, this was also combined with the fact that my host family, there was a lot of English and a lot of very good English. And they were more keen on practicing their English with me than teaching me Macedonian. Um, that changed when I got to my site, <laughs> because there was almost no English there. Uh, there, there were two guys that lived in the village that did speak English, but it took me a while for me to meet them. It took me almost two months. Um, so I was immersed in the language. And I would say after about like nine months of being in the country, I spoke Macedonian fluently. Um, you know, not perfect, but enough to hold a conversation with the Babas and the Dedopsi. Um, my Macedonian now is not very good. I can still read it, um, but speaking it's quite hard for me. I don't use it in Thailand. Yeah. So, which means another visit to Macedonia is, uh, is, is supposed to be planned. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I was actually thinking about coming uh, next month. This is before COVID, you know, messed everything up. Now I don't plan past uh, what I'm having for dinner. Um, but um, I had a friend of mine who uh, is Bulgarian and he was getting, he was going to be married in Plovdiv and I was going to, after his wedding, I was going to visit some folks in Skopje, but that's out of the question now. <laughs> yeah. So I've been, I mean, I've lived abroad for a year and I know when I got to Texas, in my case, there were some things that made me think, wow, this is really different than what mm -hmm. I've known before. So speaking of the cultural shock, can you tell us a few things that, you know, you got to your site, you got to meet your Baba and Dedo and like people in the village. Mm -hmm. What was that something that made you think like, wow, this is so different than everything I've had before? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I guess for me, what struck me very hard was um, kind of the less um, directness that a lot of people showed me where, you know, like Americans by and large are very, um, you know, we kind of say what's on our mind and, and, you know, we're, uh, we try to be as like straightforward as possible. And something that I 
uh, kind of struggled with at first was like, I really wanted to be like involved in like the family and the community. I wanted to show them that I cared. And it was kind of like, uh, it felt to me at first, like everyone was just kind of like, oh, you don't want any part of this. Like, like, like you're not one of us. Like you don't need to be uh, working on the farm or, or working in the garden or anything like that. Um, the way I overcame that was um, I just kind of like persisted and got better at the language and uh, showed them that I you know, wasn't here for vacation. And um, eventually they started to accept me. But the first three months were really hard. It was also winter too. <laughs> that was tough. Considering the timeline when Kisco Montiers arrived in country, that's it's pretty much winter at that point. Yeah, I'll never forget when I went to um, when I first moved to Bogomila uh, a few weeks after we had Badnik, um, and uh, my host brother. He would never tell me where we were going. He would just kind of take me around like I was. Um, like an annoying little brother, which is probably, you know, accurate. <laughs> he would just tell me, I'd ask him like, where we're going? And he'd say, oh, Nagore. And it was so confusing to me. I was like, we're going up, up where? Like, <laughs> and so he took me to this bonfire for Bodnik. I'm standing around and I don't know anybody. It's just snow, cold. Everyone's drinking wine and Rakia and talking to each other. I'm just standing there like, hey, how's it going? And I um, approach these, these, these old guys, these dedos, and I start speaking my very elementary Macedonian. And then all of a sudden, one of these dedos starts speaking English to me, like pretty good English too. <laughs> and I said, wait, like, am I drunk or something? And he's like, no, I used to live in America for like 20 years. I used to live in New York. And um, so he's like retired and he moved back to his hometown. It's very cool. Yeah, so from my experience with Peace Corps volunteers, I know that when I was younger and like I would meet them and, and you briefly touched on that, like my thing was that I wanted to talk in English with them. I mm -hmm. didn't really care about their Macedonian. I wanted to kind of practice my English. Yeah. And I, like you go into the school, how's like, how's that working out? Like, is it easier for you with like younger kids or even they wanted to be like work on their English? and with your colleagues as well like can you like tell us like how was your school life i guess in in macedonia ah yeah okay so um there was really no um my students were not all terribly interested in learning english um and it's understandable they didn't really have a practical reason and it wasn't really kind of it wasn't sold to them you know, like, so it was just kind of something that they did. Uh, my counterparts were both very nice and um, they were, they spoke English, but they were more interested in like including me in like the Macedonian side of things. So I actually ended up spending most of my time chatting with them in Macedonian and learning about how things work in Macedonian schools. Um, the way I kind of got the kids on my side uh, was, I didn't really make it about learning English. I made it about like being creative and finding different ways to express themselves. So I did lots of art projects and uh, things to help um, like clean up the community. Uh, there was a lot of trash in my village. And if you've ever been to that part of Macedonia, it's known for its like natural beauty. And uh, it was always a shame to see plastic bottles and stuff like that everywhere. So that's how I did it. Um, you know, and to this day, the kids don't really speak English very much, and that's okay with me. <laughs> so. Yeah, so we met at a youth camp, uh, YMLP, mm -hmm. Young Men's Leadership Project, and one of the things I remember specifically about you, and when we, we were uh, talking with Nicola about this interview, I, I said we got to talk about his footwear in Macedonia. So <laughs> can you tell us... Uh, can you tell us what's that all about? Um, I inherited a pair of cheek Kumanovo um, from uh, my baba. She, she gave them to me initially for shower shoes, but I said, I got to wear these. These are so cool. And um, so I just wore them everywhere. Um, I even brought them to Thailand. Um, and then I left them on my front porch 
and some dogs took them away. Uh, I was so sad. And I, when I went back to Macedonia, I looked all over and I couldn't find a pair. I, I guess the factories closed or, or something. Um, but I told my Baba that the dogs took my cheek Kumanovo and she just shook her head. Yeah. Yeah, she was, she was not happy about it. <laughs> I brought them to the beach in Thailand, too. I, I, I think I posted a picture when I moved here. <laughs> and all my Macedonian friends, including you, Nicola, were just texting me like, holy shit. Oh, excuse me. Can I curse on here? Um, sure. Sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, the, 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 the Chikumado are definitely a travel travel footwear. Uh, speaking of YMLP and youth in Macedonia, uh, can, you, can you just um, give us your thoughts on young people here since you've worked with some young people, including ourselves at YMLP? You know, where, where do you see young people in Macedonia going, at least when you were here? Like how, like how things are going? Um, oh yeah, your, your thoughts on, on young people. Well, like, I love you guys, like you guys in YMLP, and not just YMLP and GLOW kids, but like some of the other students that I met in like Veles and some of the high school and university students who would come back home to uh, Bogomila. You know, uh, I really bonded with them um, in ways that I think that I wouldn't. Like you guys taught me a lot about uh, the country and uh, the uh, situation. And, um, you know, it's, it's really great that there are a lot of like leadership opportunities, but like, I think that it's kind of like an incomplete picture without like, you know, material support and betterment, right? Like, I mean, it's no mystery that like the population, especially younger people of Macedonia is declining. And a lot of that is because of opportunity and lack thereof. Um, and uh, so it's it's really inspiring to see young people who like really want to like make a change and a difference i just wish that there was like the other side of that you know like more material bad benefits higher salaries better infrastructure um things like that yeah and like speaking of young people like speaking of mlp it's like can you like i mean we haven't really taught, talked about YMLP on this podcast when we were doing it in, in Macedonia, but like, can you like, like to, to those that are listening right now, uh, and hopefully there are many, uh, but like, can you like let us know, like, what was your, like, why did you decide to kind of join this camp and like help out with doing it? And like, what was your like best, like one best story from YMLP? Well, um, initially, I didn't want to be a teacher. I wanted to take a break from teaching. Oh, sorry, let me, let me go back. When, when I was working at YMOP camp, I taught classes on environmentalism. And I also did an elective about uh, historical thinking and about how different historical interpretations can really change you know, a story. Um, and, but initially I didn't want to do that. Um, I wanted to kind of just take a break from being a teacher and I wanted to be like a counselor. Uh, but they put me as a teacher and I'm glad that I did that. Uh, it was a lot of fun for me. Um, it was just, it, it gave me kind of a unique, um, opportunity there because, uh, I could communicate with younger people in my native language. Um, so they could like kind of understand me a little bit more. Um, yeah, my favorite part of it was actually teaching that elective. Uh, and it was just great to hear like some of the campers saying, uh, wow, I like didn't really like history and reading history. I thought it was boring. And like you, you kind of changed my mind on that. And I'm going to start looking into it. I was like, hey, that's great. You know, it's really important to study history. <laughs> So, considering you're a historian by major, um, you know, and, and, and we have this, uh, the, the talks on the, on the fascinating history of the Balkans, like, mm -hmm. what, what, uh, what is so fascinating to you about history, and what is, 
and and are you sort of interested in like Balkan history? Can you tell us something about that? Yeah. Um, well, I, my love of history comes from a very uh, primal origin. I just really like stories. You know, I like hearing lore and uh, you know stuff that happens, and and I think that's something that like most people like. Most people like story. Um, that's like the more simple component of it. I think history is very important to understand, not just because of the, you know, you don't make the same mistakes of the past. It's um, to do justice by telling the truth and by understanding that uh, when you uh, whitewash a history or sometimes outright lie about something, um, that you are doing a disservice to the people who are alive today, but you're also doing a huge disservice to a lot of people who, you know, did not, um, you, know, you know, who had something bad happen to them. Um, so that's like the more serious part of it is, uh, is making sure that the narrative is, is not tainted and that you understand the context in which the narrative comes from. Uh, Balkan history, um, I'll be honest with you, I uh, had a really hard time finding um, sources that I thought were, uh, you know, not heavily biased. A lot of the reading that you do about Balkan history, particularly of Yugoslavia, is very, you know, like at least the sources that are in English, is very slanted towards NATO and the West. Um, and that kind of made it a little hard for me to like really kind of consider myself super knowledgeable. Um, I think it's really interesting, but I'm still very much uh, an amateur when it comes to understanding the history of uh, the, the Balkan region. Yeah, so like speaking of history and I, I've had a professor on uh, one of the very first episodes. So I asked him this question and I wanted to ask you this question as well. Mm -hmm. Like, especially like during like, it's true for a Balkan region, but I think it's also true for all over uh, the world that countries and political elites and like just the whole political structures are using history for all for their own narrative. So mm -hmm. like, how should one like in your opinion as a historian and someone that something that you study, how should one consume history? Like, why is it so important? And how should we act knowing our history or like, or is it important that much? For the present and the future? Well, I think it's important to look at not just the events of history. Um, that's not history. Like, hi like history is not like a, a, a series of static events. It is interconnected and it's part of a bigger story. So how, how should one consume history? One should consume it like you would a story. Where is it coming from? Who are the characters? What are their uh, motivations? Uh, who is benefiting from something like this. And keep in mind that when you are studying the history of a country, whatever country that may be, or, this, or, or the history of a people, the fundamental question for me is always, what does it mean to be somebody in this time, in this place? You know, it's, for me, I think people should study, should consume history in like, uh, like a people's history uh, and not think of it like this monolithic, you know, this is the history of China. You know, well, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, and you would have to look at the different ways that the um, narrative is being brought about. Yeah, so you finish your term in Macedonia mm -hmm. and what's next? How do you decide to go to Thailand and, and teach there? <laughs> well, it was really kind of random. Um, I was like, well, I don't want to, um, I don't want to move back home, you know, permanently. Um, I still want to teach abroad. Uh, so I just, um, I went on uh, like a jobs board for uh, English teaching job thinking I would only do it for maybe a year or, or two. I got hired at this school in Suratani. Um, and it's an international school, but it 
it was not what it seemed at first. It was uh, quite a, um, it, it's still very much a developing place. Um, and that was really exciting and that's what made me stay uh, initially. I also, uh, I have a girlfriend who I'm pretty serious with. We've been together for a year and a half and so that's another good reason to stay. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, it, it was just totally random. Like they hired me and I said, okay, I'm going to Thailand. <laughs> Well, since you're in Thailand now, and especially since it's the coronavirus pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, and and from a perspective of a teacher, especially one that teaches elementary school kids, like how is teaching different in in the times of COVID nineteen? Oh well, it's it's completely different. Like the teaching online is like it's not totally useless. The thing is with teaching online is um, you don't have the same controls and you don't have the same uh, physical proximity and it really kind of shows you how much like um, humans need that sort of like nonverbal communication right even just placement in the classroom can make a huge difference um, so yeah it's it's just not as structured um, it's not as natural. It's not my forte. Um, I, I, I will be the first to admit that I am not as effective teaching online as I am in, in the classroom. Um, it also depends a lot, like online teaching is not as flexible. Like uh, I think you have to have like a well-designed course and uh, curriculum from the get-go. Whereas if you're teaching in a physical brick and mortar school, uh, you can you still make lesson plans obviously and 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 you go in there with a game plan and some alternatives but if you can kind of suss out that like oh the kids aren't getting it or it's too, or the other way around it's too easy you can change things up in the moment can't really do that online because it's you know it's 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 much more rigid yep so and like also like sorry like also like little kids it's just not natural for little kids to be staring at a screen all day <laughs> i don't know what they're going to do if this continues yeah i, I agree with you there uh, and I, I don't think the situation is much better here in macedonia mm -hmm. uh but coming back to macedonia you said like the first thing you not noticed about skopje was that it was so hot <laughs> so what was the first the first uh, thought that you had when you landed in Thailand? Um, my first thought was like, I thought Skopje was hot. This is way hotter. Um, but also like, it's not like Suratani, like right now it's a, it's, you know, during the day it's on average, it's between 33 and 35 and that's hot. Um, but like, um, it's a different kind of heat because it's closer to the equator. So the sun is like way more intense. So it feels much hotter than even like a hot day in the, in, in the center of Skopje. Yeah, beside, so beside your teaching job, I mean, mm -hmm. now we're kind of talking more like before COVID-19. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like Thailand is a huge country compared to Macedonia. And like, were you like, have you explored it uh, some or like what, like if someone wants to go to Thailand after the, all this is over, what would you say to them? Oh man, there's so much to see. Um, yeah, I've been to, I spent some time in the North in three places, um, Bangkok, uh, Ayutthaya and uh, Chiang Mai. And, and Chiang Mai is where I am moving next month. Uh, Bangkok is a city of like 20 million people. Yep, 20 million. <laughs> it's really big. <laughs> and it's, it's very overwhelming at first. Um, there's a lot of just great, like, kind of uh, historical, cultural monuments there. Uh, there's just, like, 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 just a, like, a lot of street markets. And it's just, like, a lot of stimulation at one time. Um, Ayutthaya is kind of like the, uh, uh, let me see if I can draw a slight parallel it's kind of like the ancient rome of like that part of asia like that's like the although it's not as old uh it's like one of the first uh or not not one of the first it's like one of the best preserved old kingdoms of thailand um so that's worth seeing 
Um, other parts, like uh, Thailand is a very diverse country. There's, there's different language groups and there's different uh, cultures within the country, depending on the region, just like any other place. Right? So if you go to like the south where I live, um, the local language is actually completely different than Bangkok Thai. Although most people also use the Bangkok Thai in like business transactions and things like that. Uh, the food is different. Uh, the geography is different. So yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's, there's so much to see. I could spend the whole podcast just talking about places to visit in Thailand, honestly. Uh, how, how, how would you, how would you recommend for the most, for the best experience travel wise, in terms of mode of transportation, would you recommend a bike or bus or what? Oh, um, oof. It depends where you are. Um, if you're in Bangkok, definitely take what's called a uh, what's called a tuk-tuk which is kind of like um uh it's kind of like a mini taxi uh they also have public tra transportation uh but if you're in a place like where i live in Suratani, which is like a medium-sized town uh you would have to rent uh like a like a scooter like a vespa or something to get around because they don't have a lot of public transportation options yeah and in terms of food like you've been in Macedonia, you've tasted our food, you're in Thailand, Thailand's mm -hmm. food. What's better? I mean, not to put you on the spot now, but like. Oh boy. Well, I have to be careful with a lot of Thai food because I'm allergic to shellfish. <laughs> and um, a lot of Thai food has uh, crab or shrimp, particularly uh, uh, powdered shrimp that's put in some of the curry. Um, but it was one of the first things I learned to say in Thai is I'm allergic to seafood. <laughs> Um, so, and they kind of understood that, uh, the food in Thailand is, uh, spicy. That's, uh, the first thing I would notice it's spicy. And, uh, there's a lot of, uh, coconut, a lot of citrus, a lot of ginger and a lot of curry. Uh, the main like carbohydrate, like most of Asia is rice. Um, and, uh, there's more to rice than you think. Uh, there's like lots of different types and different types of rice for different types of, um, dishes. Uh, the food in the north and in the south is different. Uh, in the south, the food tends to be a lot spicier and a lot more coconut heavy. Um, makes sense because of the climate. Uh, compared to Macedonian food, it's, I mean, Ma Macedonian food is delicious, but it is not spicy. It's, um, it, it, it's, there's no better or worse. Uh, it, it's just totally different. Um, Something I do miss a lot in uh, Thailand is just like bread and cheese. That's like not really a big uh, culinary thing here. And actually a lot of Thai people don't like cheese. Uh, it's oh, interesting. So no shopska uh, for you there? No shopska. <laughs> you can get cheese and it's very expensive actually for, for the quality and for the amount. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I miss my burek. I miss my skara. Um, like one of the first things I got when I, came back to the Balkans was actually I landed in Serbia first first thing once I put my bag down in my hotel was I ran around the corner and I got a Paskavica <laughs> I had to you gotta do it you gotta do it uh, so uh, speaking of Thailand speaking of Macedonia let, let's jump across the Atlantic or in your case across the Pacific uh, and check out the USA which yeah, mm -hmm. so you're I think I, as far as I remember, you're originally from around the DC area in Virginia. Yes. So, uh, so you were here, I think, during the 20, 2016 elections. Still, yeah, I remember. I remember where I was when I found out that Donald Trump was the president. <laughs> <laughs> I was I um, drinking uh, Turkish coffee in my teacher's lounge, <laughs> oh, and. Wow. Uh, one of the teachers came in and he was kind of like ironically a Trump supporter. <laughs> and uh, I mean, he didn't really know what he was talking about. He came in and he goes, Trump, Trump, Pobedi. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> um, I feel like, yeah, everyone was like that at that point. So uh, right now, the U.S. is facing another election, hopefully in November, unless some things happen. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts on the newest discourse on the elections? Well, I mean, 
you have to break it into uh, parts, I think. Uh, I mean, it's no mystery where my political leanings lie. Uh, I'm not a Democrat and I'm not a Republican. Uh, I think, um, well, let's start with the Democrats. Uh, so what's happened with the so-called resistance in, uh, in the United States? They, they threw everything they had to try to stop Sanders, even though he's a very popular politician and his policy proposals are popular amongst working people. The fact of the matter is, is that to the Democrats, he represents a threat to their status quo and their corporate hedge money. It's not really a mystery. Um, they didn't, um, it wasn't like a, uh, a, a conspiracy either. This was no secret. Um, but uh, where was I going to go with that? Uh, the problem with the uh, left in America is, uh, you know, Sanders is a great politician. He's a great guy. I respect him a lot. It was the first and only time I've ever donated to a campaign. But one of the problems with the progressives is they don't really know how to argue when a Democrat or a Republican says, you guys are socialists. Because that's a four-letter word in the United States. Uh, it's becoming more acceptable, but like, what they never said was like, yeah, we're socialists and this is what socialism means to uh, like voters, right? It means free healthcare. It means uh, access to higher education. It means uh, the right to have a home. Um, it, you know, it means all of these things. They didn't really make it so concrete. They kind of dodged it because they were scared of uh, being perceived as too radical, even though if you look at Sanders's proposal, it's kind of standard for any EU country. It's kind of like a, like a duh, like, yeah, you need to have a national health system. Um, so what's going on right now is, I mean, it's not just that, like, I think, uh, Biden, uh, assuming that he's still the nominee, um, it's not just because people don't like Bernie. It's also because a lot of people are very scared and traumatized by a Trump presidency, which is a shame because, um, like, it's it shows a real uh, lack of historical memory. I mean, Trump is really kind of a uh, he's 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 not as much of an anomaly as you think he is. Um, it's just because he, he says things in a less polished way. I mean, if, if we were alive in uh, 1980 uh, and you listen to Reagan's campaign speeches, it would sound almost identical to something Trump would say. Um, so, but a lot of people are just scared of another four years of Trump. And so they're going to go with the safe option. That's never worked for the Democrats ever in their whole electoral history. Yeah, I mean, you said it, like, people are scared, but does that mean that Biden actually has a chance against Trump? I mean, just mm. his, historically speaking, incumbent presidents have a very high percentage of winning the re-election after their first term. And a lot of people that are on the Sanders side they're considering not to vote for for Biden because of these issues that you've you've said because of the status quo and just the like the the, the open thing against Sanders from the establishment from the media from everyone that was uh, scared that is scared from him maybe even more than Trump I said would that lead to just another four years of Trump? Well, um, it's really hard to say. Uh, I'm not, um, I've never really been in the business of political prediction making. Um, and honestly, all those people that predicted that Trump would lose in 2016, they're still making predictions. <laughs> like, and they were so wrong. So, I mean, I am not in the camp that like a Biden nom nomination equals another four years of Trump. It could happen. It could not. Um, let's look at the different things that kind of tip the scales. Uh, the Trump has a lot of gifts that the Democrats gave him. Russiagate, 
right? I mean, just recently, uh, Michael Flynn was exonerated, right? Uh, the Russiagate thing is a complete fab fabrication that the establishment Democrats, uh, you know, spent over three years trying to find uh, some sort of evidence of collusion between Trump and the Russian government, and it just it just didn't exist. Um, so Russiagate is a huge gift to Trump. Uh, his failed impeachment, huge gift. And Joe Biden himself is also a huge gift to Trump because he's, um, he's weak in ways that are uh, a lot more critical than even Clinton was weak in uh, 2016. His, his dubious past, uh, particularly with, uh, you know, being on the side of NAFTA and big corporations, uh, his uh, incessant lying um, about almost everything in his life. And of course, his, his very clear uh, case of what I think is just cognitive decline. He can't form a sentence and doesn't seem to know where he is half the time. If you think that Trump is going to be civil with that, that's just, you know, you're delusional. He's going to eat him up. Weighing the other side is COVID, right? The way the U.S. government has handled this is, you know, it's criminal. And, uh, you know, uh, they are empowering these armed protesters who want to go eat at a Baskin Robbins for crying out loud. And uh, they acted like it wasn't there. They tried to blame China. Uh, meanwhile, there's, I think, almost 90,000 people have died. And it's not really, it's slowing down a little bit right now. But, you know, it's not anywhere near concluding. Um, so anything could happen. I don't think Trump is a shoe in but I also don't think that Biden is a shoe in And so, so we have to see November, hopefully. Yeah. Well, so. you know, and you, you like the, the convention for the Democrats is not even over yet. They might decide, oh, Biden's too much of a liability. We'll put someone else in there. I mean, if, if it would be my guess, they'll put another centrist in there. There's no way they would pony up for Bernie. Well, what about Hillary? Oh, no. She, <laughs> if, if Hillary uh, becomes the nominee in 2020, I don't know. I think, I think the matrix is just going to break. <laughs> like, I can't imagine why they would think that's a good idea. But you never know because these, the Democrats just have this, like, they have such a uh, a defeatist outlook towards politics, you know. And if you want, I can go into that uh, as to why I think that is. But they have such a defeatist outlook towards politics that they just they shame the progressives and like the left in America uh, into voting for them, which has never worked. Um, you're not going to shame me to vote for Biden. I mean, I will never tell anyone how to vote. Uh, it's none of my business, and it's in my opinion, mostly a symbolic act anyway. Uh, but this idea of like, you have to vote for Biden because he's the, he's the lesser of two evils is, it's just not a winning strategy and it's never proved to be a good one for the Democrats in their past. Speaking of the, the, the lesser of two evils and sort of the defeatist mentality, uh, you know, considering Bernie Sanders has officially dropped out of the campaign, even though he's still on the ballot in most states, uh, where do you see, what do you see the leadership of the progressive side of the Democratic Party, or rather the progressive side of the U.S. in general, mm -hmm. uh, is heading towards? Like, what kind of leadership is needed to bring a much more stronger uh, progressive wing of the, uh, of, of the American political specter? And and of course, um, and of course, considering now that with Bernie Sanders out of the picture, well, mostly there is uh, there is an opening of debate, uh, especially through some actions that uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez took in in her time in in the House. So, where, where, where do you see the leadership strategy going forward for the for the progressives? Uh well, you know, I think it's very promising to see that there are, you know, open socialists that, that hold elected office. Uh, you know, AOC, uh, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar. Um, 
but there's like three, you know, and um, they still kind of cling on to this idea of electoral politics is the only way to go, right? I think they need to change that. I think electoral po my politics is important. You do have to have people rallies and kind of get behind a movement and organize some policy proposals. I'm saying that's important, but you also have to have another side of that. You have to have activists. You have to have people that take direct action. You have to have labor organizers. You have to have people to organize strikes and to uh, create petitions. The left doesn't have that yet. I think they're working on it, but it's very, very, very small um, and it's insufficient. Um, another problem that plagues the left, and this is kind of a historical problem, is just differences of identity. Are you a communist? Are you a socialist? What kind of socialist? Are you an anarchist? Uh, that, that stuff has got to stop. Uh, and what needs to happen is a more concrete, uh, on the ground, direct action labor organization compare or sorry paired with uh political activism too um and also they really need to drop that d next to their name and you know admit that the democratic party is not the party of the workers anymore uh and it would be wise to form their own party too i think <laughs> yeah so like I mean, there are lots of parties in the U.S., but like Republican and the Democratic Party are just the, the two mainstream that kind of have monopoly over their whole mm -hmm. political spectrum. And uh, like, let's say like they form a party, Democratic Socialists of America. Like, what would be like? Can they really hurt the Democratic Party by doing that? And like, how would that work? Well, I mean, that's a that's a very good question, and and I can't I can't answer with a hundred percent certainty but i but i would say that um if the democrats continue down this road and it might happen after this election there there has to be a split i mean people like uh like joe biden and clinton and john Kerry and tim kane those guys aren't they aren't standing up for working people they're corporatists and they are for all intents and purposes those guys are just moderate republicans and that has been the strategy of the Democrats since the Reagan years. Um, I, th I think it needs to split, but it's not ever going to be effective if there's not mass movements that don't just put all of its stock into electoralism. You, know? you have to demonstrate to bosses and landlords and big companies that like, unless you start treating people more fairly, um, you're you're going to lose your workforce you know your wealth is dependent on our production so, uh, so with this like electoral politics uh, i i also feel like in this um in this primary season we've also seen headbutting between the two what are considered the two most progressives uh, the two most progressive people in congress right now which is elizabeth warren and bernie sanders uh, do, you, do you feel like Warren betrayed somewhat the Bernie Sanders first by back in 2016 when she didn't uh, endorse him, but also right now running against them and actively running negative? Uh, negative. Well, Elizabeth Warren has uh, terrible political instincts. Um, you know, all, going back to the, the powwow chow book and this whole getting tricked into doing race science by Donald Trump. Um, her, her, she is, she might be considered a progressive and, you know, she is progressive on some issues, but I don't think she falls into the same camp as someone like Sanders or the SWAT. Um, and she's not on their side. So I, I wouldn't say that, that, that she betrayed them. I would say that she was acting like, you know, an opponent, would she's just very bad at it <laughs> like she like the warren campaign just they just kind of shot their wad uh you know when um uh they uh tried to get sanders on a sexist comment that nobody heard you know and there were no witnesses they just said i can't even i can't even recall the details it was just 
he allegedly said that a woman can't be the president, even though his, he, like, no one heard him say it. And what happened to that? It just fizzled into the wind and Sander, or, uh, Warren finished like third in, in her home state on Super Tuesday. So Yeah, in Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah, so she didn't betray him. She just was his opponent. Yeah, like you, you touched upon like Trump and like his rhetorics, and, and I mean, frankly, how he became president in 2016 is, mm-hmm. uh, and like I want to go a little bit back, and you said that your colleague teacher broke you the news that Trump is the new president, and like I'm sure you've you've seen it when you were in Macedonia, but like, and I mean, it's my kind of uh, realization that a lot of people here are like Trump and uh, and like wanted to ask you why do you think that is why do you think like Macedonians would like Trump and like or anyone else for that matter uh, or and how he became this like politician that he is today well I saw from what I saw a lot of people like Trump because they really didn't like Clinton they saw Clinton as, uh, you know, a representative of, well, she, she is, she's Bill Clinton's wife, um, of somebody who attacked Serbia. Um, so a lot of people just heard the name and they didn't like Trump because of anything that he does and, and says. They like Trump because he's, he's not a war hawk. At least he wasn't a war hawk in his rhetoric in 2016. Actually, he was, he was very anti-war, which was kind of appealing to a lot of people. Um, you know, Macedonia was, was, was not, uh, so viciously attacked as Serbia was, but, um, you know, it's my understanding that, you know, Macedonians feel very culturally and, uh, historically close to Serbs. And, and so watching a, uh, an all out attack, especially on civilian places like hospitals and television stations was, you know seen as and rightfully so as a, just overly aggressive and america extending its power uh when it need not and like following up and like leading up to this election 2020 mm-hmm. uh like we can all agree that another four years of trump it's not just going to be bad for the u.s but probably for the entire world as we've seen how he's handling the the whole pandemic uh, situation and then we've talked about how the progressives and like the democratic party really cannot get their act together which could lead to four more years of trump so in your opinion what would four more years of trump look like and what the what would be the impact of it it would be to take a stab at it uh it would be just hell world like have you ever seen wally like we're we're going towards that world you know where it's just the 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 planet is uninhabitable and people are kind of incapacitated maybe not physically but like uh they just they they don't have any uh control over the situation it's um Another four years of Trump would be a disaster, but primarily because of his very blatant attempts to cut back on uh, environmental regulation. Um, I mean, that's the big thing. Trump hasn't started like a new war somewhere. Um, You know, he does disastrous trade deals. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of jabbing at China. Um, but you know, in my opinion, a lot of the real damage is environmental. And then of course, within the United States, a huge upward just transfer of wealth by tax cuts and other deregulation. It's going to be horrible. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. Like, and like you said it before, like if we start going like down the path of like discussing this even more, we can do another 
two hours or three hours of the podcast yeah. and and but like something that let's back to like let's get back to like the peace corps and kind of like connect it mm-hmm. with politics i want mm-hmm. like because i know that i mean from just meeting you guys and like talking to a lot of uh peace corps volunteers that have been in macedonia i know that there are certain rules and like you can't really openly speak about u.s politics when you are a peace corps volunteer uh, so how is that for you like you you i mean we know you like you are very very like open about your uh, political beliefs and what what do you stand mm-hmm. for and and like connected with like the peace corps uh experience like how was that like limitation uh, going for you well it was a little hard for me uh to say the least um the a policy was not to uh shy away from u.s politics the, the policy was to shy away from macedonian politics um so i could talk about the u.s all I wanted. Um, but, you know, and by shying away from Macedonian politics, I read that as don't take an official position, don't express your official position, and don't be seen doing anything like political. And that's wise. Um, so a lot of what, uh, Uh, like the way I handled it was I just, you know, answered a lot of questions that Macedonians had to me about U.S. politics, particularly about foreign policy, which was very interesting. Um, and I would just listen and ask open-ended questions without kind of taking a side uh, about what they thought of the political situation in uh, Macedonia. Now I'm no longer a volunteer, so I don't have to worry about any of that. I can say whatever I want. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so as, as we sort of wrap up the conversation, uh, mm-hmm. I feel like a good question to ask would be, what would be your recommendation for young people uh, as they sort of grow into a world which is sort of completely changed from whatever the past normal might have been, especially post-COVID-19? So mm-hmm. what would be some of, something that you would advise young people to do? Uh, remember that nothing happens in a vacuum, that there uh, is always a context and, you know, we are part of something greater, you know. Um, it's never just going to be about this election. It's never just going to be about this gaffe. It's never going to be about just this. It's a big picture thing. Use your skills, use your company, uh, and by company I mean the people around you, uh, to organize and uh stand up for you know average people um what's happening now in the world with COVID-19 is you know it presents an unprecedented economic uh vulnerability it just highlights how how gross the inequality is not just in the United States all over the world um and now is the time to remember that and try to apply what we know and what we're good at to put pressure on those that, you know, are in power, I'll use the Marxist word, those that own the means of production uh, to uh, press for better treatment and for reforms. I think that's, that's where it starts, but it starts at a, uh, it's, it starts at an organizational level first. It's not going to be this huge uh, monolithic thing. Yeah, so, yeah thank you and just thank you for the like the, the time that you gave us and like the conversation that we've had I, i look at the clock it's been already an hour uh and i feel like this is a good place to kind of wrap it up on a positive note kind of mm-hmm. encouraging note yeah. and what we do with all what we do is i mean yes we're in COVID 19 we're all locked locked down and like we can't really leave our homes but We can change things when all of this is over. Uh, so, uh, but anyways, what are we like doing with all our guests so far, uh, especially during this time uh, in quarantine is asking them to give us a few recommendations, whether that's a movie or a book or a TV shows or even a hobby oh, wow. that they might pick up. So like you mentioned before the conversation that you've read a lot of books and you've uh, watched a lot of Netflix. So what would 
Phil's recommendation be for our listeners and for ourselves to kind of check them out? Uh, for books, um, I just finished a, a Steinbeck novel called In Dubious Battle. And if you have read Steinbeck, you know that he is a, a very uh, famous American author who wrote um, about migrant wor wor workers in the Great Depression. Steinbeck was no leftist, um, and he, uh, but he really just made a great um, like portrayal of uh, you know how hard it was to be a farm worker in the 1930s. Uh, in terms of podcasts, I can recommend uh, some good uh, politics podcasts. One is called Useful Idiots. It's uh, by uh, Matt Taibbi, and uh, I forget his co-host's name. Um, but, uh, Matt Taibbi is a, is a great journalist who, uh, you know, has written specifically about Russiagate and, and about the 2008 financial crisis. Excellent journalist. Uh, I recommend the comedy podcast, Chapo Trap House. If you haven't heard of them, uh, they are, um, just a hilarious, uh, group of guys that like met on Twitter or something. <laughs> and, um, they, uh, do a weekly show about, you know, just all the, weird and crazy things that happen in American politics. Uh, Netflix, um, I just am re-watching a lot of old stuff because I personally, I think TV most of the time is trash and it's just, you know, a way for me to turn my brain off. Thank you, Phil. And yeah. I mean, do you have anything to ask us before we say goodbye or? What are you guys doing? Like, are you just hanging out at home? <laughs> I mean, we were doing the podcast, the Better Bleed. Uh, yeah. We were actually doing a lot of work with the University Student Assembly. Uh -huh. uh, so, so we're just trying to get that up on its feet, uh, which from what I've seen, it's going great so far. Awesome. Uh, but, but, you know, staying in quarantine and preparing for exams coming up soon. Yeah. yeah, go on. No, I was just going to say that like, it, like it looks in Macedonia that like the measures are kind of like loosening up and uh -huh. I think starting tomorrow we can even like be more outside and like, like for me as like a baseball fanatic and like I finally mm -hmm. found a baseball team in Macedonia and we were registering and so we're becoming official and That's great. starting next week we might be actually able to do some practices outside. So like doing the podcast hopefully doing baseball and i mean just like trying to find ways to stay in like stay sane during this period mm -hmm. definitely are you guys both in uh skopje right now or are you guys back home we're actually back home but we're going to skopje soon enough next week yeah this is i think yeah this is like, like our last day back home and i'm getting to skopje tomorrow i think nicola is getting to skopje tomorrow yeah. so he kind of caught us and like hometown life uh, right now yeah yeah that's yeah no i i'm glad that you guys are safe and i want to say like uh this is um this is really good what you guys are doing it's a great project um i would listen more uh it's a little hard for me to understand it sometimes because again my macedonian is very rusty uh but i think it's really cool uh and uh thanks for inviting me on the show I hope uh, I don't thank, thank you. your listenership. <laughs> oh, no, we're definitely going to invite you again, especially like kind of like in the build up to November, if that oh, election please. happens <laughs> or after like to tell us what, what has happened and like what, the, like what are your thoughts on it. But thank you for, for accepting our invitation. Thank you for talking to us. And I mean, Absolutely. now that we have, we'll have English episodes, you can listen even more and hopefully we can get some other uh Peace Corps volunteers or other people that have been in Macedonia that are now not here uh, to talk about more their experience and just stuff that interests them. Uh, and yeah, like for our listeners, uh, we're going to release these episodes, I think every two weeks, hopefully it'll be like during the weekend uh, and we'll go from there. We'll see how it goes. We're going to continue with our regular Macedonian podcast episodes every Wednesday and talk about politics and some other stuff uh, that we think of. Uh, so you guys stay safe and we'll talk soon.
Thanks. Thanks again for uh, having me. You guys be well. And um, just uh, let you know when I'm coming to Macedonia. We'll have a beer or something. <laughs> yeah, and we'll try to get you that Chikumano. Uh, oh, yeah. For you. I'll tell you my size. <laughs> cool. Okay. It's been great, guys. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Mel. Bye. Ciao.